Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we always want to approach you as we approach our word, your word, with an attitude of prayer. We want to humbly ask you to open our hearts with wisdom, to give us wisdom, to understand, to give us grace to receive. Father, do that miracle in us as we come to the moment of preaching where, where you give seed to the sower. Prepare our hearts to be fertile soil. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now I told you last week that we would be coming um, back to this verse, and I gave myself some license to spend a little bit of time here because there are there is more than one way to approach this, this text. And that, that is true for most of the Scripture. That is certainly nearly everything that Jesus said because he was a master teacher. And uh, master teachers have a masterful way of saying things that can be taken in more than one way. They pack a whole lot of truth into a few little words. And that is certainly true of Jesus. Last week, we approached this passage from the Great Commission perspective. And I had planned to tell you about this prism and how we look through this prism, but I just don't have time. Uh, so I'll, maybe I'll do that some other time. Um, but we attacked it from the perspective of the Great Commission and how that softens our, and shapes our heart and drives our heart toward others to open the doors of the kingdom of God and, the, uh, and, and you know, how, how we should weep for others and for the sins of the world. And that should push us into sincere and compassionate disciple-making efforts for others. And we, we looked at mourning uh, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, we looked at mourning as it, as it relates to weeping for the world, the sins of others. So we looked out there when we looked at mourning. And today we're going to turn our eyes inward to our own hearts, to our own wrongdoing, our own sins. We're going to look in here. Now it is certain that Jesus had a number of things in mind when he said, blessed are those who mourn. And not the least of those things is that we would be mourning over our own sin. Right? It is very noble of us to mourn for the sins of others. <laughs> How very noble of you to mourn for someone else's problem, to be concerned about someone else's problem. That is, I'm not making light of that. It is part of the Great Commission. I spent a whole sermon talking about it. I wouldn't have talked about it if it wasn't important. That's part of the Great Commission. It's part of being a compassionate Christian. We are certainly commanded to do so. Jesus did say, however, why are you trying to get the twig out of your brother's eye when you got a big branch in your own eye? In other words, there is plenty of sin in your own heart to mourn over, brother. Also, not only, but also. But the reality that we face is that we often don't approach our own sin and wrongdoing in a very mournful way. I don't know about you, but when I am confronted with my own sin or my own wrongdoing, that's just offenses against others. I'm saying sin and wrongdoing because sometimes we try to put categories around things. And when I say sin, we're gonna, we create these little categories that we say, oh, that's an offense against God. 
So things like just offending my brother just, or just being rude to somebody, that doesn't count. Well, yeah, it does. That does count. And I don't, I don't want you to think those are two separate things. So I'm saying sin and wrongdoing to try to get you to lump all those things in together. All right? So when, I, when I'm confronted with my own sin and wrongdoing, just offenses against others, my tendency is to become defensive or dismissive or even worse. In the Bible, we have some stories of two different men, two, two very different men. Both of them committed terrible sins. They were very similar sins, but they were equally terrible sins. Both of them expressed uh, or, or reacted, reacted to their sins in very different ways. One was consumed with worldly guilt, and the other one expressed deep, sincere, godly sorrow. One of them took a path that was selfish and destructive. The other one went on a path that was uh, repentant and uh, a path of restoration. And if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 4, we will look at what happens when we allow worldly guilt to govern our responses when we are confronted with our own wrongdoing. And unfortunately, this is the dominant response that we see among, well, certainly among the world because they don't know God, but we see this so much even among believers, even among believers. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 3, just to set the stage, 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering, a fruit of the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, the book of Hebrews, it gives us a little bit of insight into what was going on and why all of this went down the way it did. I'll just read it for you really quick. You don't have to turn there. In Hebrews 11, chapter 4, It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So here's what happened in Genesis. We have two brothers who gave offerings, Cain and Abel. One of them gave an animal sacrifice, and the other one gave a sacrifice of plants, fruit of the ground. That part doesn't matter. We may as well not even know that part, all right? Plant, animal, both would have been acceptable offerings to God. In fact, when God instituted the official sacrificial uh, system under Moses, He ordained animal sacrifices and grain offerings and drink offerings and bread offerings. So so animal sacrifices and fruit of the ground, all of those things were acceptable offerings to the Lord. So this had nothing to do with what 
they brought to God to give as an offering, animal or fruit. This was about two men, Cain and Abel. And Hebrews, when it explains what happened, Hebrews nails it down in the first two words of chapter 11, verse 4. It says, by faith. Abel's offering was given by faith. And we are to take it to mean that Cain's was not. So we must also take it to mean that all that that word means, by faith, and all that that word means, what it means when it was given by faith and everything that is, that is caught up in that word faith. This is not just belief. This is trust. This is hope. This is affection. It's love. This is reverence and respect. This is joy and enjoyment of God. Cain's offering wasn't given in the same way that Abel's offering was given. How he saw that Abel was joyfully celebrating God and enjoying God in a way that Cain wasn't, wasn't doing. It wasn't love, whatever Cain had done. Whatever was in his heart, whatever was in his mind when he offered up his offering, it wasn't faith. It wasn't any of those things. It wasn't trust. It wasn't hope. It wasn't affection. It certainly wasn't reverence or respect. It wasn't love. It wasn't joy. He wasn't enjoying God. And so God didn't approve of his offering. I mean, would you? If your spouse brought you some flowers, wives, if your husband brought you flowers and just threw them on the table, would you approve of that? This is what happened. This is what Cain did. Here you go. There was no enjoyment in it. And so God didn't approve the offering, and Cain was indignant. He got angry over it. And when God confronted him about it, you know, God, being a loving God, he's like, hey, you know, I saw that you're mad. Why are you mad? You're not the one who was offended. Why are you mad, Cain? He said, Cain, God was loving and gentle when he approached him. He said, Cain, look. Son, if you, if you just do well, won't you be accepted? If you just do well. In other words, he says, son, I am here for you in the same way I'm here for Abel. There's no, there's no difference. If you, if, you just, if you just enjoy me the same way he does, if you just come to me with your heart, this, this isn't about the offering. This is about your heart. If you just do well. And even, he was even so caring and so loving for him that he cautioned him about his attitude. He said, look, man, sin is crouching for you at the door. It's hiding. It's waiting for you. And if you continue down this path, it's going to get you. It's waiting for you. And you've got to rule over it. Amen. But in Cain's anger, the next day he rose up and he killed his brother. So let's pick up in verse 9, chapter 4. This is where we need to begin paying attention, particular attention, to the way of Cain for our purposes today as it relates to worldly guilt. When we are confronted with our own wrongdoing, our tendency is to go the way of Cain, and that is to sink into worldly guilt. That's what we normally do. There are at least three things from Cain's example that we need to look for to examine ourselves against worldly guilt. 
And I'm going to run through these hopefully pretty quickly because I have six points to make this morning and I do not do well with that many points because that's a lot. So let's hope we can get through it. Um, I'm going to run through quickly. I want to spend the bulk of my time looking at our better example. So we find the first one in verse 9. Worldly guilt denies our love and responsibility for others. So when you feel yourself doing this, and let's, let's look at verse 9 real quick. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, y'all know this one. This is so, everyone knows this. He's, what did he say? How do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Now, first of all, he knew exactly where he was. So I think this is clear. Cain's responsibility for Abel's death is obvious. He murdered him. He is directly responsible. And yet he brushes it off as if if to say, uh, I'm not in charge of his his care. I'm not in charge of of his well-being. It's not my responsibility to look after him. (laughs) You just, you killed him. We are commanded to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So this kind of attitude, am I my brother's keeper? This kind of attitude towards our brother is, to to put a play on words, to put it in context of the text, is deadly. (laughs) Literally. It It is deadly for our souls and it is deadly for those around us. Yes, it is our brother's, it is our responsibility to be our brother's keeper. Yes, we have a responsibility to those around us. Jesus said that we will be known by our love for others. We are known by how we love others. Worldly guilt denies that love. It denies that responsibility that we have for others because it looks only to self and it says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. I'm only responsible for me. And how often do we see that out there? I'm not responsible for how you feel about what I do. I'm responsible for what I do and what I feel. It doesn't matter what you feel. i got to move quickly. And then God passes judgment on Cain. So first of all, and so when, you, when, you, when your attitude goes there, and it, it most often does, worldly guilt, the way of Cain. All right? First warning sign. And so then God passes judgment on him. We have this whole list of judgments that God passes on him. And in verse 14, we see Cain's reaction to this judgment. And this, here's what happens. Worldly guilt refuses responsibility for ourselves. So we refuse to take responsibility for our own actions. Not only does it deny love for others, deny responsibility for others, but it refuses to take responsibility for our own actions. I, it's not my fault. So often people refuse to hold themselves responsible for their own bad behavior and their own Uh, bad decisions. Look at his response in verse 14. He says, behold, that means look, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Look at the second word in verse 14. 
Who is responsible? You. You did this to me. This is your fault. Behold, look. You put me here. You drove me away. It's your fault, God. My misfortune, my poor circumstances, my situation, all this predicament, I lay at your feet. You did this to me. Don't we do this all the time? This sin of worldly guilt is crouching at the door and it's hiding and lurking in the shadows and you don't even know it's there because once you give in to it, once you fail to rule over it and you allow it to rule over you, you feel justified by it you feel empowered by it, you feel strengthened by it, and it will embolden you against the God of the universe. Boy, what a terrible place to stand to be emboldened against the God of all things. And that's exactly what happened to Cain. He was emboldened against God. You did this. Behold, look, you have put me here. And that is one final window into the worldly guilt that we have. And it's perhaps the most tragic consequence is that it drives us away from God. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. How can we stand before the Lord when we blame him? How can we stand before God when we hold no sense of proper sorrow for our own sin He is righteous and holy, and the evildoer cannot live in his presence. He hates evil. That's Psalm 5. Without repentance, there is no place to go but away from him. We must be careful not to go the way of Cain. We must be careful not to give in to worldly guilt. Worldly guilt will destroy us. Not all tears are blessed, dear ones. And I'll show you that later. So let's contrast that now with godly sorrow. I chose to shine a light on the shadow and shame of Cain's approach by looking at another very famous sin, if you'll turn to Psalm 51. A very famous sin that even involves a murderous heart. I did that so that we can, uh, as closely as possible, try to compare apples to apples. If you're familiar With your Bible stories, you'll know the story of King David and Bathsheba. David was a righteous king. He was a man after God's own heart. God had said that. So he desired uh, with an unholy desire. Somewhere along the way, he lost sight of his first love for God. He chose to follow the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the pride of being king. He desired to have Bathsheba, who was another man's wife. And he sent her husband to the front lines of the war, and he instructed the other soldiers to pull back when the fighting became most intense so that Uriah, the husband, would be killed. Now, for all intents and purposes, this was murder. The only thing lacking was that David wasn't actually physically holding the weapon that would be used to kill Uriah. But make no mistake, David had Uriah killed. It was a murderous intent in his heart, and he had the same murderous intentions as Cain. And to add to all of that, he did it to cover up his adultery 
with Bathsheba. It was sin on top of sin, on top of lies, on top of sin, on top of sin. So there's a whole lot of sin going on here. He lusted in his heart. He lied. He coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery. He committed murder. And the list goes on. How many commandments have been broken here? Now, at least Cain did his uh, egregious sin before there was ever any law. David, his response, though, was much different than Cain's. David responds with mourning over his sin. He responds with godly sorrow. As we look at David's response to being confronted with his own sin, there are, there are three essential uh, elements of godly sorrow we should look for in our own lives to know whether or not we are responding in the right way. When we are confronted with our own sin or when we are confronted with offense to others, when someone says, hey man, you did me wrong, we should look for these elements in our own life to know if we are responding in the right way, in a godly way. The truth is, if we are honest, if we're honest about it, we are confronted with our own sin a whole lot more often than we'd like to admit but instead of dealing with it with, it, with godly sorrow, we, we go the way of Cain and we just dismiss it right off the bat. It's not my responsibility. It's no big deal. It doesn't matter. I'm not my brother's keeper. You name it. So with David as our example, number one, godly sorrow will expose and emphasize my love for God. That's what godly sorrow does first and foremost. Godly sorrow over sin, or let me put it this way, sorrow that leads to repentance begins with love for God. In fact, that's where all true, sincere apology begins, or sincere repentance begins. It begins with a love for God, or a love for the one you have offended. That's where all sincere apology begins, with the love for the, the one you have offended. If you have no love for the person you've offended, then you wouldn't care, and there'd be no sincere apology. Am I right? Surely. I just said it, right? <laughs> for non-believers, this means that they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them. They receive it with joy. They believe it with faith. They love the Jesus they just heard about. They realize that he is holy and that without them they are lost. And so they renounce their old life and they pledge their new life to be lived for Christ. That repentance starts with love. They have to love Jesus more than they love sex outside of marriage. They have to love Jesus more than they love alcohol. They have to love Jesus more than they love pornography. They have to love Jesus more than they love gossip or their foul language or their selfish ways or their laziness or their gambling or go, not going to church or anything else that the world has to offer. They have to love Jesus more. Godly sorrow begins with a love for God. And it's not much different for those of us who are already Christians. We have known God. We have seen him. We have cherished him. We have treasured him. He is the most high king. And when we realize that we have committed an offense to a person like that, to someone of his stature who has done so much for us, who has been so far for us, who has brought us up so high with him, that is what breaks us. We have offended 
the most high, the most holy, and that is what breaks us. In 2 Samuel 12, we see the story unfold of how the prophet Nathan came to David and showed him pretty bluntly how he had offended God. So God pronounces judgment on on David, and it was a severe judgment. He didn't hold back on him by, by any means. It was a pretty severe judgment. He said that David would always be in conflict. There would would never be a time of peace in David's life. He said that enemies would rise up out of his own house, and that happened. David had to flee Jerusalem because of Absalom, his own son. God said that even his wives, oh, it's graphic. I can't even say it in, in the pulpit. His wives would be taken from him in broad daylight. You can read the passage for yourself. It's R rated. And that happened. And he said that all this is going to take place. He said, David, you sinned in private, but all this is going to take place in in front of Israel, in public. This humiliation, open humiliation for you. And after hearing all of that, and it it was, that was done all in public, in front of David, open humiliation, it was terrible. But after hearing all, all of that judgment was going to happen, David's response was simple and humble in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. David simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. No argument, no justification, no excuse. And this isn't the author's trying to take a shortcut here. He's not just just trying to mince words. (laughs) I mean, think about it for a minute. This is the same person, David, that when he was a boy, God said, I have found a man after my own heart. This is the one who wrestled bears and lions. This is the giant killer who said that the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not mine. It is the Lord's. This is the same David who worshiped before the very throne of God on earth, the Ark of the Covenant, and that was something that was reserved only for the high priest. Everybody else would die if they did that. This is the same David that God told him personally, I will establish your throne forever. And now here he is and he has sinned against the one who has brought him through so much, who has loved him from the pasture to the, the throne, who has established him and given him a kingdom and an inheritance. And he had everything to lose. He had everything to lose. He had wealth to lose. He had had a kingdom to lose and a throne to lose. He had wives to lose. He had a position to lose and a prominence to lose and a reputation to lose. He had everything to lose. The judgment was severe. But what did he say? He's just said, I've sinned against God. His concern was not for what he could lose. His concern wasn't for himself or his reputation. He was grieved because he had offended the one that he loved. And so when when it hit him, the gravity of what he had done and who he had offended, he simply said, I have sinned against God. And we know this was a statement of true repentance because Nathan tells him immediately after that, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. This is the context for Psalm 51. That's what is underneath and going on behind Psalm 51, if you'll turn there with me. 
This is David's prayer of repentance. And we see the same sense of grief over offending God that is, is echoed in David's prayer. So in Psalm 51, verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So this is where godly sorrow springs from. This is where it comes from. We have offended God. Never mind that he had a man murdered. Never mind all the others that he had betrayed or hurt in the process. The kingdom that he had put into jeopardy. The throne that he had put into jeopardy. Never mind all that. He had offended God. Now that doesn't mean that we don't seek forgiveness from the others that we have wronged also. But the chief among our concerns, the greatest among our offenses is that we have wronged God always. Whether it's something as blatant as the sin of idolatry, idolatry where we have chosen to abandon God and go after false gods or something more subtle and indirect as dishonoring our parents, the offense is chiefly and primarily against God because it is sin. It was Jesus who said, whatever you have done to the least among these, you have done unto me. Now, I will be fair and say that when he said that, he was talking about kindness. But the other opposite end of that is true. So that, feeling that, against you alone, in you alone have I sinned, that can only come from an increased focus, an exposure of the love that David had in his heart toward God, the love that had been hidden and covered by that sin. It had been exposed. Love that obviously faded into the background and overshadowed by other desires and lust. This sorrow, this kind of mourning is the godly kind. And we know it because David's love for God is exposed and we see it most clearly in this confession in verse 4. This is the bedrock of godly sorrow. Sorrow that leads to true repentance, love for God, affection towards Him. You all know 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That is what is underneath it all. Love for God has been exposed and illuminated when you're confronted with your own sin and wrongdoing, are you pressed deeper into the love for God? Is he exposed in your life? And if not, then you're responding, uh, you're not responding in godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. Amen. And you're dangerously flirting with sin that is crouching at the door, the worldly guilt of Cain. So I'm saying when sin, when you're confronted with sin, is it which most of us do? Or do we sink into sorrow and, oh God, is he exposed? Oh, I see you. I'm so sorry. I've offended you. Amen. Amen. Do you see what Cain did? Do you see what David did? Love for God lies underneath sincere and godly sorrow. That's what is underneath it. That I can't ignore what is right on top of the text either. 
You know, we can try to dig so deep we miss what's laying on the surface. We can't ignore what's right on top of the text either. There is a clear stance of self-responsibility that that David is taking. Or to put it another way, he's refusing to blame others. And that leads to my second point. Godly sorrow pushes us further into righteousness. All right? Let's look at verses 3 and 4. David takes full responsibility for his actions. He says in verses 3 and 4, he says, I know my sin. I know it. You are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I know what I've done, and you are right to judge me. You're blameless. In verse 5, David says, look, I was born in sin, even conceived in sin. And then he gives God credit in verse 6. He's saying, you you didn't have much to work with because of of where I came from. You didn't have much to work with. I was sinful from the beginning, but you didn't care how I was formed. You were concerned about the inward being, and you taught me wisdom in the heart. You weren't concerned about where I came from. You, You wanted to teach me wisdom in my heart, and you even taught me that. The point he's trying to make is that in spite of my humble beginnings, in spite of my sinful beginnings, you worked through that, and I failed you anyway. He's trying to say, I could have appealed to my beginnings. I could have tried to go all the way back to my sinful origins and made an appeal to that, but God, you overcame that. I still don't have a leg to stand on. I have no excuse. This is so rare among people today. People just don't take responsibility for their wrongdoings. So often they go the way of Cain. They lay blame at somebody else's feet. They make excuses. Well, I didn't know. He wouldn't get off my back about it. If she had done it the right way, if she had done it a different way, I wouldn't have acted like that. I didn't get enough sleep. The system is set up against me. It's Thursday. Excuse, pile on top of excuse, on top of excuse, throwing blame, left, right, up, down, you name it. Any other, everybody's at fault but me. We throw it everywhere it belongs except where it belongs. Everywhere we can throw it except where it belongs. Godly sorrow looks inward like David did. And because it is rooted in love, it finds fault in no one but where fault belongs which is nearly always you. Even when it isn't you, it's you. Because if you're offended for some reason, I promise you that pride is at work in you somewhere. That's Proverbs 13.10. Look it up. But look at what it does when you refuse to lay blame at someone else's heart. Let me put it differently. When we take full responsibility, because taking full responsibility uh, is a little bit different than laying blame or refusing to lay blame. They're very similar, but I want to be clear. David is taking full responsibility for his behavior, for his sin. No one is at fault but him. Look at what it drives him to do. First, it drives him to throw himself on the mercy of God We see that in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Remember how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount? He said, uh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. David was absolutely guilty. He had no recourse. He had no excuse, no way out. His only appeal was to the endless mercy of his loving father. And so that's where he went. 
He asks God to blot out his transgressions. This means to strike them from his record, to remove them from the book. Now that's a transactional term. He wants his record to be expunged so that he can be in the presence of God again, so that he can be in right standing with God. He wants to be friends again. The statement is about his relationship with God. I want things to be right, Lord. I want us to be able to talk again. I want us to be able to be in communication again so we can walk together. But then immediately after that, the very next sentence, he turns inward in verse 2. Psalm 51, verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is his second appeal. This one is not transactional. This one is personal. Get the filth of this sin off of me. I feel dirty because of it. I want to be clean. And God is the only one who can cleanse the soul from sin. This feeling of being filthy comes only from being in the presence of God. David would never have felt this way had his love for God not been exposed the light not been let in. So don't misunderstand me when I say this is an inward appeal. This is as much about his relationship with God as it is about himself. Because the closer you are with God, the more you care about the filth of your sin. David's grief pushed him further into righteousness. It didn't pull him further away. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, he echoes that plea. I want to be clean again. Make me right again. He pushes further into righteousness. He wants to walk with God close to him, uphold his statutes and be right before him and clean before him. And this comes out of having a godly sorrow over his sin. More often than not, we take the opposite approach, don't we? We go the way of worldly guilt, the way of Cain. And we move further away from righteousness rather than pushing into it. What do we do? When we're confronted with wrongdoing, we just relax our standards. Oh, it doesn't really matter anyway. It's okay if I watch that. That didn't hurt me. I can handle that. Test yourself by this. Instead of appealing to God to wash us and show us how to do better, how often do we instead turn and go the other way? Or we just ignore it? Godly sorrow calls you toward righteousness, church. Those tears are blessed. Not all tears are blessed. There's a third element that is natural to godly sorrow. We should look to it to check our own hearts to make sure we are processing our guilt correctly and that our sorrow over our sin is righteous. And that is that it should stir us in a desire to declare salvation to others. In verse 13, David said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. In verse 14, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. Those statements are prompted by these statements. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O Lord, open my lips. This is the natural progression according to the way of 
that God does things, isn't it? The whole prayer, this whole chapter in Psalms, this whole prayer is the story of sin, repentance, salvation, and praise. Isn't that how the whole thing works from the individual, from the internal to the external, from the individual to the masses? Something happens in here, and it's something wonderful. New life happens in here, and there's overflowing joy that I I just can't contain. I've got to get it out. And we see it over and over in the Scripture. People come to the Lord, and they come to Him broken, weeping, mourning, grieving, and they leave declaring the good news of God. And here we see David, and he hasn't even received a deliverance yet. He hasn't even been, he, he still has to face his judgment. And he's in the middle of his mourning, in the middle of his weeping, and crying out to God over his sin. And he's saying, Lord, I will tell of your goodness. I will teach transgressors. That's Old Testament, for I will make disciples. Do you see that in your own heart when you're confronted by the sin in your life and the wrongdoing in your life? Are you taken to a place in your grief that says, you know what, Lord, you are so good in your forgiveness and your mercy because the Bible says his mercy is new every morning and he is faithful and just to forgive. The Bible says that. Are you taken to a place in your heart that you say, I have to tell others, I have to declare your salvation to others because I know you have given it to me and that even though I weep over my own sin, I know that your kindness is so good. I will testify to others. Because we know what happened to Cain. He left the presence of God. He left fellowship altogether. Rather than declare the praise of God, rather than declare and sing out of his righteousness or make disciples, he withdrew himself altogether. Brothers and sisters, Jesus said that those who mourn are blessed for they would be comforted. I have focused today on mourning as it relates to our own sin. It's important that we get mourning right because in it lies the comfort. There are tears that will not be comforted. In verse 16, David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He wants a right heart. We see the same thing in Hebrews when the author of Hebrews is speaking about Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau? Esau sold his birthright for a song. Not literally, it was a meal. And he wanted to get it back. And in verse 17 of chapter 12 in Hebrews, he says, For you know that afterward, when he, that's Esau, desired to inherit his blessing, he was rejected, for he found a chance, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The blessedness is tied to the mourning, and we have to get the mourning right. We have to have the right heart about our wrongdoing, dear ones. So is your love for God exposed? Check it. Are you pressed into righteousness, or do you feel yourself rejecting it? Boy, that's a big one. That's a real big tell-all right there. Because I think 
That's a really easy one. Sometimes it might be hard to feel like, I don't know if I'm exposing my love for God in this. But one really big tell-all is to find if we're being pressed further into righteousness or if we're being drawn further away from it. That's a simple matter of obedience. Did you know that? Are you convicted to declare salvation to others? And if you are, then let me offer you this comfort. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. So when David said, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean, create in me a clean heart, O God. He is faithful and just to clean us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you and we thank you for your word. I ask now that you let it rest upon us. Um, We are grateful for it. I ask that you give us mercy to have received it. Do your work within us, Lord. Help us to receive correction from you uh, and to receive it with godly sorrow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.